This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Roger Dean Underhill, Mike Phoebus, and their attorneys sat in a room in the Springfield, Missouri facility where Thebus was housed. They went back and forth, arguing about what Roger felt he deserved from Mike. It was the same old discussion, and they got nowhere quickly. The two attorneys left the room, leaving it to the former friends to work it out. The conversation had been recorded the entire time, captured from a tiny microphone hidden in Roger's shoe. The following is a reading of the transcript recording between Roger Dean Underhill and Mike Thevis. These are not the real voices. I won't say too much right now, Mike. Look, let me show you something. I got problems. Now, look, when I took the test for the FBI, what agent was there? Uh, King was there, and the FBI polygraph examiner was there. And Roger Thompson was there. And he looked at the question and struck a couple. Why did you take a polygraph test on? They asked me if I killed Jimmy Mays. They asked me if I killed Ken Hanna. And if I put his body in the car. And if I saw him alive that day. I said, no, no, no. Well, didn't they ask you if you had any knowledge of it or et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. How did you do? I didn't tell any lies, and they said I passed with flying colors. One thing they did ask me, they said that, uh, that, that, now see, I had the privilege. You didn't tell any lies? No, sir, but I had the privilege. Roger Thompson said, you had the privilege. Nothing can be used in, uh, out of this, out of this thing against anybody, and some of the things that, (coughs) They asked me if I know who killed Ken, Ken Hanna. Yeah. Somebody tell you who killed Ken Hanna? I said yes. You said yes, you know? I said yes, I know, because I, I told Roger Thompson I'd tell the truth, you know. So anyway, they couldn't use this thing to bring me before the grand jury. But they didn't ask you any further things like... Like, uh, now, Roger Thompson struck a lot of this off... They didn't ask you any further things, if you were an accomplice in it, or if you helped in any way. They asked if I had knowledge. They asked me if I built a bomb. I said no. They killed Jimmy Mays. They asked me if I saw the bomb. I said no. They asked me if I was downtown or saw Mays the night that he was killed, and I said no. Well, what, what they, what'd you tell them when they asked if I did it? I said yes. Well, you mean you... You wouldn't want me to lie. Well, no wonder you passed. You expect me to tell the truth. No wonder you passed. I believe it. I'd pass with flying colors. They told Thompson. They were very close up and until probably 1975, and then it just went downhill. 
He knew that Underhill was talking to the FBI. And I visited with my dad in Underhill a couple of times in the Atlanta Penitentiary, and it wasn't pleasant conversations. I frankly don't know why I was even doing there. All his employees loved him and adored him, which is why I never understood why Roger Underhill had such a big problem with him, other than he claimed that he invented that Pete Michaud machine. I don't know who did what or what the truth is, but my dad relied a lot on Underhill, who was a low-level employee at the time, when he had all these hundreds of other employees he did not. He clearly made a mistake, but they were best of friends for a while. His main thing he said was that Underhill was incapable of telling the truth. And he's very dangerous and somewhat psychotic. And people were fearful of him. And you know, he was a hardened criminal himself. I mean, there's a rap sheet on Underhill for 25 years worth of arrest. But, you know, you lay down with dogs, you come up with fleas. And, uh, you know, he chose him as an employee. And I think he made bad decisions, obviously, with whom he hired and worked with. They had a disagreement. Underhill always felt, according to my father, that he had been cheated. And my dad always felt like he took his bum off the street and made him what he was and gave him a good piece of a business that he didn't need him to build. He could have done it without Underhill. He was no bright, shining star. He wasn't an intelligent man at all. He was a crook who knew how to break any lock in the world. So why the two of them connected, I'm not quite sure. My aunt, Georgianne, used to tell me that he was a bad person and that Mike needs to stay away from that man. The two had been close. Underhill had worked undercover for Thevis, buying on their newsstand employees. He set arson fires all over the country, trying to stomp out the competition as his trusted number two. He had helped Thevis that day at the warehouse when Hannah was killed, driving to the airport with him, melting down the gun, and tossing it into the river. But the business got in the way, and there could be only one boss, only one man with the power, the money, and the attention. Thevis was done with Roger. He knew he was talking to the FBI, and he'd been trying to take him out for years. Their friendship was a thing of the past. But Underhill had done it. He had gone into the prison that day and did what he wanted to do. Roger was going to have the last word. Roger Dean Underhill went into hiding. The risk was too great, even with Phoebus behind bars. Leon Walters was a former Green Beret in the U.S. Army. He was bushy-haired and had a beard like lots of men did in the 1970s. He was Thevis's second-in-command, not unlike Underhill, but more on the business side of things. I think that Leon Walters was one of his closest employees and friends at the time. Leon was a Green Beret captain. He was an uh, intimidating, well-built individual. He met Leon Walters because Leon had the name, the sound pit, and he had it registered, and he had it, what do you call the word when you incorporate, in Georgia, the name. My dad liked that name. He loved it. So he arranged a meeting with him, and Leon had a small real estate company. He had the sound pit name, but he hadn't built anything with it yet. So they negotiated to buy the sound pit name, which they ultimately did. And then he brought Leon on the work to run the sound pit initially and to get it up and going and to incorporate and start and run GRC records. Walters came on board in the fall of 1972. 
He was brought in to be a troubleshooter and to help put certain parts of the company back together that were in rough shape. Underhill had been pushed to the side anyways, allowing Walters to take a greater role in Thebus' business and his daily life. Walters became a personal confidant to Thebus as time went on, spending most every day with him. He helped screen people that came through the office, especially since the music business had become an important new focus. They became close when Thebus was injured in the motorcycle accident. Thebus really thought he was going to die. Walters said that Thebus tried to spit out to me in about 15 or 20 minutes all that he could think of that he wanted somebody to know before he died to take care of. He would discuss all his troubles, his woes, and his girlfriend problems. He worked for Thevis as a troubleshooter, a confidant. He was Thevis's closest associate during 1973 and 74. One time, Walters and Thevis were flying back to Atlanta from Los Angeles. Walters, being a former Green Beret, sparked Thevis's curiosity, and he asked Walters about his experience in the U.S. Army. Thevis told him he too had experienced killing someone, that he shot a man one time. The former Green Beret captain said Thevis once told him of killing a man face to face, of shooting him and watching him beg for his life, and then shooting him again, and then of melting the gun to get rid of the evidence. That man went down to his knees and was gurgling blood, and looked at him and was pleading for his life, and he looked at him and shot him again. Thevis frequently talked of murdering another competitor, Jimmy Mays, and that when Thevis was in an Atlanta hospital after a motorcycle accident in 1973, he gave Walters $3,500. The money was for Roger Underhill to buy supplies. The next day, Jimmy Mays was blown up in his van, and Underhill presented Thevis with a piece of bone he was planning to turn into a paperweight. Walters, too, saw the bag with pieces of skin, bone, and the back of a watch in it from the Mays van explosion. Thevis told Walters that Underhill was in the Clayton County Hospital getting ready to go before the federal grand jury, and it would be worth $20,000 to Walters if he made sure that Roger didn't reach the courthouse. Walters said Thevis once offered him $20,000 if he could keep Roger Underhill from talking to the grand jury. But after the motorcycle accident, Leon said Thevis had become too difficult to deal with. Leon said Thevis offered him a company, any company he wanted, in order to get him to stay. But Leon Walters left in July of 1974. Thevis was fighting battles on all fronts. He was in prison trying to run his businesses, but there was a void of leadership at the top, especially now that Leon was gone. To make matters worse, the government was looking at a bigger case against him. He saw the trouble coming. The feds were putting together this big potential RICO case, racketeering-influenced, corrupt organization case, which really threatened to put him behind bars for life. There's a, there's a whole different level of trouble for him in a RICO case that could tie, and murder, if, if in fact they can tie him to these two other pornography industry peep show related crimes. And so we, we spoke to him, this was, and we had done the full where he gives his life story and I 
you know, I'm afraid that my henchman to save himself is making up all these stories about me. And he then he also does, you know, why why would I I have this much to lose? I'm turning my life around. That whole the whole extended mythology. So we had already spoken to him. We were going to write extensively about the looming threat to him. Busting of his image as just someone who sold racy material. And you could make the case, people could, you know, the racy material. I said, tomorrow we accept what, the, what you arrested him for yesterday. So that was easy for people to kind of overlook. Thebus had trouble brewing on all sides. Underhill knew what he had done and was now in hiding. Leon Walters knew too. Thebus had asked him to kill Roger, but Leon didn't get it done. He too was gone. And the feds weren't done with Thebus yet either. RICO charges loomed. For the longest time, amidst all the craziness, the arrests, and the constant media circus, home was Thebus's safe haven. But those days were long gone. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Joanne Thebus was the quiet type. Her husband was a larger-than-life figure in the media, but Joanne had kept a lower profile. She was sometimes seen in TV interviews or in newspaper features, but mostly she stayed in the background. Joanne had a family to take care of while Mike was so busy running his empire. But when the possibility of her husband going away to prison became more of a reality, Joanne appeared out of the shadows, offering Atlanta Constitution reporter Kathy Yarborough a tour of Lionsgate, the Thebus home she helped make beautiful. So did Jerkin Salesman Make It Big was the title of the newspaper feature from April 1973. Can a soda jerk from liberal Kansas find happiness with the former pornography king of America? Joanne said, We don't think of ourselves as rich people. Mike and I are so busy working day by day that we don't stop and think about how much money we have. Mike promised me he'd be a millionaire by the time he was 30. He did not quite make it, but still, I never thought we'd have this much. Joanne gave a tour of the home. The dining room had a beautiful English countryside mural. The many rooms featured French, Chinese, and English antiques. Joanne talked with Yarborough while she sat on the leopard print sofa in the den. Joanne had been by Mike's side when he was in the hospital, helping him recover and get back on his feet. In 1976, as Mike served the second year of his eight-and-a-half-year sentence, a tearful Joanne approached congressman and future mayor of Atlanta, Andrew Young, begging him to help her husband. She wanted to get him transferred to a different prison so he could receive better medical care. In February 1977, with President and fellow Georgian Jimmy Carter now in office, Young became U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. 
Young wrote, Please investigate this matter and inform me when Mr. Thevis will be released in view of his need for further surgery. Sincerely, Andrew Young, Ambassador. The letter, combined with her husband's previous boasting of being able to have influence over politicians, caused quite a stir. Once he was in the penitentiary, he reached out for help to get out for humanitarian reasons because of his injuries. Jimmy Carter was elected president what, in 77, January 77, and Andy Young was named, I think, UN ambassador. And yeah, he, but they knew, had known each other for years prior to that. I mean, Atlanta's a small community. My father knew everyone in the political circles back then, and Jimmy Carter just brought his Atlanta people with him to Washington. Joanne was doing everything she could, and Mike had been moved around from so many prisons in Indiana, Kentucky, and Texas, to name a few. But Mike got his wish and was eventually moved to the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri. Joanne, too, had offered whatever help Mike needed in the business. Early on, she had been a bookkeeper for Global Industries, the main business Mike owned. She was named secretary or treasurer for many of Mike's corporations, but it was just a paper title. She knew Ken Hanna and his wife, and they had a close friendship. The couples used to go out to dinner, and they even took a trip to Mississippi together. It was Joanne who said she discovered Mike at the crash site of his motorcycle accident in 1973. She said she was driving down Riverside Drive on her way home, and she passed Mike and Roger on the street. Mike was lying down on the grass, and Roger was standing over him. The ambulance had already been called, so she followed it to the hospital. She wouldn't leave unless there was someone else there to stay with Mike. She stayed day and night for two months. She said she was very worried about him. He kept trying to pull the oxygen off his nose so she wouldn't leave the room. She said, I wouldn't go to sleep because I was afraid he was going to die. Mike didn't have many visitors. He didn't want people to see him in that weakened condition, nor did Joanne. It was Joanne that had told Mike about Jimmy Mays dying in the van explosion. She said her husband was shocked when he heard the news. Pat came into our lives in the mid-70s. Through that relationship, we got to know her because she would transport us to go see him in the penitentiaries across the country. We would fly up there and she would... It was typically my brother, Jason, and my twin sister, Stephanie, and I, and Pat, the four of us, would go see him. And that was his girlfriend at the time, and my mother didn't want to go see him. She didn't want to schlep us up there, and she didn't want to see him. So she was fine with Pat taking us. Pat McLean was only 18 years old when Joanne hired her as a hostess in Mike and Joanne's restaurant. Pat was a striking redhead. She rose quickly in the organization, moving over to the corporate office. Mike would shower her with gifts, often giving her flowers and even a new car. It was an open secret that Mike and Pat were an item. When she was only 23, Mike made Pat president of Global Industries, the arm of the business still responsible for running the pornography trade. Pat and Mike were together, even while Mike was in prison. As the affair blossomed, Pat grew close with the kids. Another phenomenal lady who I think lives out in Montana, Fond memories of her. She, again, took my sister and brother and I to see my dad all the time. And she was around all the time as a child. And we would fly to see him, and she would take us over to Stone Mountain and the Six Flags and to 
Whitewater Park, and she was a great lady. She was 100% my dad's girlfriend at the time, and she played that role of looking after the kid when we were seeing him. Pat's a great lady. I haven't seen her in many, many, many years, but I have the utmost respect for her. I do believe that she had nothing but good intentions with everyone. Patricia McLean, pretty redhead, one of many women who helped Divas out. He was going through a divorce with his wife, hoping to put that off because it helped him in his criminal cases if he still was uh, conventionally married. He was in a business where you don't necessarily expect moral conduct. I mean, part of his mythology was, I'm not going to allow any of this in my own home. I'm going to raise my kids a certain way. And he took pride, he would say at his business, there was no dating allowed in the business. And he had fired one employee, supposedly, for violating that rule. Yes, we're selling racy stuff, but we're really very moral people. And that's why I'm donating Saving the Theater, you know, donating to all the good causes, and so on and so forth. Despite outward appearances, things had not been good between Mike and Joanne for a long time. Being on her own with the kids while Mike was in prison had not been easy. And Mike's affair with Pat didn't help. They got divorced in 1978. So, and then she met my stepfather, Martin, who she was far much more in love with than my father ever. He was her husband, truly. Well, I think she did a remarkable job. She kept us protected from it. We never went to the courts. And we never went to any interviews. Stayed out of it. We stayed up there on that 18 acres in the house and playing with our friends and stuff who, who could come over. But it was, it was very much just a Michael Thevis thing. It didn't involve his family. They just fell out of love. She met my stepfather, Martin, and that was the end of that marriage. He went to prison in December of 74, and she was, uh, I think, in her 30s at the time with five children. She did what any woman or man would do. You go meet someone else, and that's what happened. was not a good husband as far as being faithful and being home and helping with the kids and all that stuff. And I think that she probably wanted to divorce him long before 1974 came around. Mike and Joanne were married in September of 1951, when they were only 19 and 16 years old. They had been married for 26 years, had raised a beautiful family, but now they were finally going to get divorced. As soon as MGT is gone, the place goes to hell. You know, there's just not a leader at the top. There's not the businessman. 
1976, Pat McLean went to Leon Walter's home in Florida to ask if he would come with her to visit Thevis in Texas to discuss coming back and working for Thevis again. My dad needed someone he could trust and he felt like Leon was someone he could trust who could come in there and get order put back in. And uh, you know, my dad had lost control of his companies essentially because, you know, you're in the penitentiary. You're not running your business in the penitentiary no matter what they say. He couldn't do it. So he brought him on. He came to see him in Texarkana, Texas, and he hired him back on the spot. And he said, go to Atlanta and clean house. And that's when I think he moved into our little home from West Palm up to Atlanta. Texarkana was yet another prison stop for Thebus, and Pat and Leon flew there that May. Thebus needed help. He felt like he was getting ripped off while he was stuck in prison. Walters did come back, becoming president of Global and other paper corporations, but mainly to take the heat. But Thebus remained the sole stockholder. Walters also noticed that Pat brought in messages when they went to visit Thebus in prison. She would hand them to Thebus, and he would place them in a special compartment hidden in the top part of his leg brace. Walters came back, but for only seven weeks. He disappeared shortly after leaving. In addition to his troubles back home, Thebus had other problems he had to deal with. Nat Balin and Urban Industries had sued Thevis. The case had been percolating for years, but now, in 1978, Thevis was transported from the Springfield, Missouri facility to a tiny jail in New Bern, Indiana, for the trial. Thevis has to go to Louisville, Kentucky area. They put him actually in a little county jail in Indiana to answer the civil suit stemming from the arson fire at the peep show business. In the tiny jail, Thevis could pretty much do anything he wanted. It wasn't clear if the guards knew who he was, but money talked. Thevis often had the main office to himself to make phone calls and conduct business, hours at a time. The prison guards stocked the refrigerator for him, filling it with T-bone steaks, pork chops, and vegetables. Thevis had a reputation as a good cook, and he sometimes made the meals himself, often enjoying them with a glass of wine. When Pat McLean came to visit, the rest of the prison took notice. Freedom to move about when he was staying in this particular cell block? Area here. Yes, sir. You were about to say that when Miss McLean came, you... The sheriff was introduced by the lawyers. Now, what lawyers they were, I don't know, as being Mr. Davis's wife. These so-called sexual visits, where did they take place? They were supposed to have taken in my office. However, when I walked into the six officers that was observing this, I turned the lights on. When I looked into the window, she was sitting on his lap. Both of them were fully clothed. Pat would stay at a nearby motel, and guards would drive Thebus there to meet her. Hours later, they would pick him up and bring him back to the jail. In late April 1978, Thebus was working to get his personal and business affairs in order before the government dropped their expected RICO charges. Mike Thebus signed the divorce papers from prison. He agreed to pay Joanne a large alimony for life, and he created a trust for the kids to keep the money out of the reach of the government. Late that afternoon, Mike Thebus walked out the back door of the prison.
Phoebus was sitting at this desk. This is the chief's office in the jail. He was making phone calls when he allegedly got up, went out this door, which leads into a small hallway, and he was heading for the outside, wanted to go out this door here, which is locked. Before he could get out, he had to come over here, push this button, which then leads to an inner corridor, and then the door to the outside. The publicity uh, will, will be nationwide. We will be sending out publicity on him as background to all media outlets throughout the country, radio, television, and newspapers. And there will also be a publicity on this thing overseas. We are hopeful that because of this added publicity to the man and the crimes he has committed, that hopefully in some part of the country uh, that somebody might spot him and want to notify law enforcement authorities. So Mike Thevis walked out this door to freedom to the sheriff's parking lot. His girlfriend, Pat McLean, now charged with aiding and abetting in his escape. Thevis, where's he? Some are speculating he may be in Colombia or Costa Rica, countries which before have harbored United States criminals. Gangster House is created, written, and hosted by me, Jason Hoke, and is a production of Imperative Entertainment. Shane Freeman is lead engineer with additional editing and production support by myself and Jasmine Cross with audio mixing provided by Resonate Recordings. Recording sessions at Tree Sound Studios, Atlanta. Claire Martin and Elizabeth Egan are story editors. Cover art and design by Trevor Eiler. Archival footage licensed courtesy of Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia, and WSB-TV in Atlanta, Georgia. Original music score by Brandon Bush. Who Are You Gonna Love, Your Woman or Your Wife? Performed by Rosetta Johnson. Written by Sammy Dees. Originally released in 1971 by Clintone Records. The publisher is Moonsong Music Company, Inc. Music licensed from Gim Music Group. Big Boat Ride, performed by Dorothy Norwood and written by Deke Richards. Originally released in 1974 by GRC. The publisher is Act One Music Company, Inc. Music licensed from Gin Music Group. Love the songs from Gangster House? Check out the new playlist on Spotify. Just search Gangster House. Some segments recorded using actors to recreate scenes based on this true story. For more information, exclusive photos, or tips on this story, visit gangsterhouse.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Gangster House. If you love the show, tell a friend and leave a review. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. Thanks for listening.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.